Hello and welcome to episode 138 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Sorry I'm a few hours late, but after a top weekend at Glastonbury in the sun, just partying endlessly, no sleep. Yeah, okay, I know, I know. I was at home gardening and in bed by 11 all weekend. But look, I still watched a bit on TV. So it's the same thing really, right? This week we are in South Wales to discuss a story which spans over 30 years that begins with a body being exhumed at dusk from a very desolate graveyard and I'm afraid it doesn't get any less grim even by the very end. Can you imagine the reality of exhuming a body 12 years after the burial? The looks, the smell. The whole story is one of absolute horror. As you know, I try to avoid two-part stories wherever possible, but as you'll hear, there is so much in this story that this has to be part one of two. Before I go on, I would like to say a huge thank you to all my supporters at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, and especially the new members of this exclusive club, that's Alicia Jones, Catherine Hughes, Maura Binder-Clapper, and Leanne Sayers. Thank you so much. Your support enables me to keep producing this free weekly content for your mm, pleasure. That's it. That's the word. Pleasure. Please help out two more creators of true crime content by heading to my website at uktruecrime.com where you will find details of a fascinating show about Bible John, which has taken place every day during the Edinburgh Festival and also a couple of dates in London in July please take a look and support Caitlin and Lizzie as they bring us this show which uses the story of Bible John as a lens through which to look at our obsession with true crime. As the entree to today's episode, let's also take a look at the music those of us born when the story begins were listening to at the time. It is a little further back than normal and in 1973 the most popular song in the UK was Tire Yellow Ribbon Around the Odo Tree by Dawn, featuring Tony Orlando. At two was Peters and Lee with Welcome Home, and at three it was The Sweet with Blockbuster. Even I think I sound like Alan Partridge today, this isn't good. In the US, the best selling single was the same as in the UK. At number seven was Elton John with Crocodile Rock, and at nine it was Carly Simon with You're So Vain. And in Australia, the top three albums were Hot August Night from Neil Diamond, Red Rose Speedway from Paul McCartney and Wings, and the excellent Pink Floyd at three with Dark Side of the Moon. In the news this month, a fourth place finish in the Italian Grand Prix at Monza was enough to clinch Jackie Stewart his third Formula One World Drivers' Championship. In boxing, Muhammad Ali defeated Ken Norton. Buffalo's O.J. Simpson rushed for then NFL record 250 yards in Buffalo's 31-13 win at New England. In the Argentinian general elections, former Argentine President Juan Perón returned to power. And Concord made its first non-stop crossing of the Atlantic from Washington to Paris in a record-breaking time of 3 hours and 33 minutes. And in the UK, it was tough in the UK at the time. And within four days, the IRA continued their campaign of terror in England, detonating bombs in Manchester, at Victoria, King's Cross and Euston railway stations, 
and then Oxford Street and Sloane Square. It was a job that nobody really wanted to do, quite understandably. But on the 15th of May 2002, the detectives and various forensic experts were all gathered on the grass by the graveside, with a large blue tent covering the scene, having received permission to exhume the body. But they were concerned. The suspect's body had been buried on this hillside plot 12 years ago, and his coffin lay on top of his father's. But just two years after the suspect's death at 49, his stepfather was buried on top of him, and there was a chance that the coffins could have deteriorated and merged the remains, potentially destroying evidence. Or on the steep slope, deep in the earth, the bodies could have slid down the hillside and could now be metres from where they were digging. Detective Inspector Paul Bethel, leading the investigation, was confident that they would be able to extract the DNA needed from the suspect's teeth or femur, the two body parts most likely to give the best results, but he couldn't be sure. With just 24 hours allowed to complete their task, and with dark humour breaking the horror of what they were about to do, at dusk the digging started. It felt surreal and wrong to be digging up the dead who had taken all their secrets to their graves. But this was one secret that they wanted to reveal. Relatively soon they had recovered the top coffin, which thankfully was in good condition. But then as the team approached the remains of the suspect, the weather suddenly changed in a flash. It had been a lovely day, but the weather suddenly turned cold and a storm broke. The heavens opened and thunder and lightning started, the like of which I have never seen, said Inspector Bethel. It was literally at the moment we came across the coffin of our suspect. There was a tremendous sense of foreboding. Is this evil being uncovered? I remember saying to the team, he doesn't want to come up. And within the hour, the coffin was out of the ground, and the remains, still wearing a hospital ID bracelet, were being transferred to a new chipboard coffin for the drive to a local hospital mortuary. Our story today is from Swansea, South Wales. You may recall from previous podcasts that it's one of my favourite cities. Beautiful Swansea, I love it there. I remember those days when I was at university in Wales, fondly drinking in pubs up the Mumbles Mile and ending up in Cinderella's nightclub, then doing whatever it took to get a taxi back to town. And today's story also starts in the Swansea nightclub, the top rank, which at the time was the number one nightclub in South Wales. Okay, look, it wasn't quite Studio 54, but it attracted all the local people from surrounding towns and villages, looking to party and have some fun. It was September 1973. As the crowd that evening came together to drink, dance, and temporarily forget the troubles of their normal lives, they could never have suspected that a serial killer was in their midst. Like the way as you listen to this, you are blissfully unaware that you have spent time with someone who was killed, and will probably kill again. But it never happens to people like us, you and me, does it? 16-year-old Geraldine Hughes and her best mate Pauline Floyd were enjoying themselves. In their daily life, Pauline and Geraldine worked hard in a sewing factory, earning just £16 a week. Pauline was the quieter of the two friends, just five foot tall 
and that night she was wearing green nail varnish and finger rings. Although both had a wide circle of friends, Geraldine was certainly the more outgoing, with an infectious laugh, and on this evening she was wearing a white mini-dress. At the end of the night, when the music finished, the lights went up, the drinks began to wear off and the embraces ended, and then there was a nightmare that was getting home. There weren't many taxis around, and a taxi for Pauline and Geraldine to travel the seven miles to the village of Landarcy, where Pauline lived, and Geraldine was going to spend the night, was an expensive four pounds. So they tended to hitchhike home, as did so many others who had been to the club that evening. It was just after 10am the next morning when Pauline's body was discovered in Woodland close to Landarcy. The scene was a truly awful one, as it was clear she had suffered a violent death due to the injuries to her head and her blood-soaked clothing. The body was lying face down with a rope around her neck numerous times, and it was that rope which had inflicted the final, terrible act of Pauline's short life, strangling her until she stopped breathing. The black platform boots she'd been wearing at the club lay alongside her body, which was covered in mud, and the pictures are terribly distressing to view. And close by lay Geraldine's lifeless body. Like Pauline, she'd been strangled with a rope and beaten about the head. Both girls had been raped, but were found fully clothed. Their tights were both dirty, so it appeared that the murderer must have allowed them to get changed after he'd raped them, and amidst the horror of the attack, maybe he'd given them the hope that they would at least be able to go home afterwards. But no, and Pauline had been strangled from behind, maybe as she was walking away. Just what happened at that copse was unclear, but it was likely that both of the friends saw the other raped, and one witness their friend murdered. It must have been just so frightening at that quiet spot. It was so close to home, and yet a situation so at odds with the safety we feel from being close to where we live. The police set up an incident room in Landarcy. It was led by Chief Superintendent Ray Allen, and 150 officers were quickly drafted onto the case. The local community was upset and angry, and they demanded a quick result and lots of information to help detectives were soon coming in. But in those days it was so difficult. The lack of computers and effective communication channels meant that information could easily be missed, and to put the information they had into any sort of order was just so difficult. It was all written cards and a big white board where actions were assigned and completed. It wasn't long before there were over 35,000 index cards, each with names and different subject categories. Rumours, psychopath, psychics, pregnant women and suspicious acts. There were 10,500 nominal suspects, 11,000 card questionnaires and 10,000 miscellaneous statements. How can you manage those without a computer? Swansea was surrounded by large towns like Port Talbot and Neath, who employed lots of men of working age. The largest employer locally was the huge steelworks at Port Talbot, which on its own employed 13,000 men. And then there was the possibility that the murderer had been a sailor and had left Wales very quickly after the murders, so tracing him would have been next to impossible. There had also been a fair in town at the time, so a lot of time was spent early on eliminating fair workers from the inquiry, 
and there were also a large number of itinerant workers as the M4 motorway was still being constructed. But there were early on some specific leads. Kevin Toulis, writing for the Guardian newspaper in 2003, in his outstanding article about this case, which I've leaned on heavily for this episode, explains that Pauline and Geraldine were seen by witnesses outside the club on the night they died. It was raining, and the girls were seen sheltering at a bus stop a few hundred yards from the club in the direction of home. A passing driver, Philip O'Connor, watched a white car swerve to the side of the road and pick them up. As he sat at the next traffic lights listening to Radio Luxembourg, the white car came alongside him. And as he looked into the car, he saw both girls in the front seat chatting away to the driver. His description was that the man had bushy hair and a moustache, but most of his face was hidden behind the two girls. But the biggest lead was the car being driven by the murderer. Other drivers in the area at the time identified that a white Austin 1100 was parked at the entrance to the cops between 1.45am and 2.15am on that Sunday morning. The cops was a very quiet place off the beaten track, known only to locals, so this person must have been the killer. But no one had thought it suspicious enough to have taken down the details of the number plate. Do you do that sometimes, take the number plate? I don't really need to ask, do I? Yeah, me too. But the make and the model of the car took on extra significance, as it was a link to another local murder. The similarities were striking, as just three months earlier, 16-year-old Sandra Newton was also hitchhiking home from a Saturday evening out at a nightclub, this time in nearby Britain Ferry. Sandra didn't make it home, and she was found four days later at a nearby disused colliery having been raped and murdered. The cause of death was choking to death with the hem of her skirt, and significantly, an Austin 1100 had been seen close to where the murder had taken place. With all the links between the two attacks, it surely had to be the same man, and the papers were in no doubt that this was the case, nicknaming the killer the Saturday Night Strangler but detectives were more cautious and they weren't so sure that this connection existed, as Sandra, on the night she was murdered, had been to the pub with friends initially, before meeting up with an older married boyfriend. She had spent the evening with him at the club, before at about 1am leaving, and to quote him, they stopped for a quickie in an abandoned van, before he went in one direction back to his wife, and Sandra walked towards her home and met her death. Some on the team felt the boyfriend was guilty of killing Sandra, which is of course understandable. But there were always difficulties with this theory, as he didn't have a driving licence or a car, and Sandra's body was found a long way away, alongside a tiny road, once a disused railway track inside an abandoned colliery. This was a site that would have been familiar only to locals. So had the boyfriend borrowed a car or gone with his friends, maybe? It was possible, but it seemed highly unlikely. But the elements of doubt split the investigation team, and the boyfriend was never quite ruled out as a suspect. The murders had instilled genuine fear into the local community, and police patrols stepped up their activity to try to reassure the public. Chief Superintendent Allen 
held a press conference appealing for information about the killer saying the following. We are pretty certain he is being shielded by someone. It could be a woman. It could be a relative or someone close to him. That Sunday morning, his shoes must have been muddy. His clothing could have been bloodstained. This man is sick and needs medical attention. He could kill again unless we get him to a doctor. Let the police know about him before he kills again and we will look after him. But despite all the publicity, detectives failed to get the break they needed and news about the case slowly died away as news stories hit the headlines. And people in Swansea slowly started to come out again in large numbers on a Saturday night, with some still hitching home. By mid-1974, a year on, the murder team was quietly wound down and the murderer of Pauline, Geraldine and possibly Sandra had got away with at least two and probably three murders. Crucially, although the case was paused, detectives thought it likely that as science evolved, there may be other ways of using the evidence they'd gathered to catch the murderer in years to come. So all of the boxes of statements and much of Pauline and Geraldine's clothing was taken to nearby Sandfields Police Station in Port Talbot for storage. The potential forensic material, the dead girl's underwear, was kept in dry storerooms at the Home Office Forensic Science Labs in Chepstow on the English border. But it went very quiet for the families of the three girls, and as other high-profile cases were solved, they started to doubt that their children would ever get the justice they deserved. Then in 1998, there was a significant scientific breakthrough, which had a major implication for this case a new low-copy number DNA test was developed that could use just a much smaller item of DNA material than before. In the past, they needed a blood stain about the size of a 10p piece, but this new technique meant that they could generate profiles from millimetre-sized stains, or even just areas people had touched or handled. Pauline and Geraldine's underwear were submitted for the testing, and although after 25 years it was very complex, to separate Geraldine and Pauline's DNA from the killer's, after two years' work, a partial profile of the killer's DNA was taken from Geraldine, and from Pauline, a full DNA profile was extracted, meaning that if the man who had committed this crime was on the National DNA Database, they would find him. Sadly, there was no easy result as his DNA wasn't recorded. So along with regular checks on new DNA submitted as men committed more crimes, they had to proactively search for the murderer. And so Operation Magnum came into being in January 2000, 27 years after the initial investigation. This was led by Chief Inspector Paul Bethel, alongside two highly experienced detectives coming to the end of their careers, Geraint Bale and Phil Rees. When they sat at their desk, the files in front of them were daunting, still detailing over 35,000 potential suspects, so their first task was with their limited resources and budget to prioritise who they were going to test. It was tough work, as in 30 years a lot of things had changed. People had moved, new houses had been built and old ones knocked down, and of course, lots of people had moved from the area or died. As well as having the DNA, the team enlisted the help of a behavioural profiler who drew the following conclusions about the man they were looking for.
He said he would have been in his late 20s or early 30s when he committed the crime, and from the Neath area, white, with a track record of minor crime around property and assault. He was unskilled, married, though probably not happily, and he was likely to have some form of disrupted childhood, maybe with the lack of a male role model. In his spare time, he would be interested in solitary sporting interests. He wouldn't be a team player, and he would be likely to be fascinated by and accumulate weapons. He was also likely to have some sort of history of cruelty to animals. In the long hours looking through the files, whether any decision to exclude a suspect could mean they let the murderer through the net again, the team discovered a series of unsold rapes in nearby Neath that seemed to be the work of the same man. Two in particular took place just before the murders of Pauline and Geraldine, and the similarities were clear. The rapist, covering his face with a balaclava, hid, waiting for a potential young victim to walk past, and as they did so he grabbed them from behind and threatened to kill them if they struggled. Using rope, he bound their hands before asking if they were a virgin, and then savagely raping them. Each of his victims commented how he smelt of tobacco, wore an anorak and had a moustache. The details of each attack were the same and chillingly when the rape was over. He would masturbate as his victim lay terrified and naked on the ground and say, don't open your eyes, I'm going to have a cigarette and think about whether I'm going to kill you or not. One high-profile potential suspect, serial killer Fred West, was ruled out of the inquiry after it emerged he'd lived close to Landarcy, where he'd worked as a labourer at the BP oil refinery at the time the teenagers were killed. But every time the hugeness of their task seemed to be an impossible one, the team recalled the horror of the attacks and so resumed work with added vigour. No one outside the team ever believed we would get a detection from this, said Detective Reese. It was like throwing a dice for two years. Perhaps the killer was not on our radar. Why could it not have been a travelling Scotsman, a Swede on a boat in Swansea docks that night, who sailed away the next day? But they still managed to reduce the list of suspects to 500 by prioritising five groups. They were witnesses, relatives, stepfathers, boyfriends, or anyone else who had been of particular interest to the original investigation. And then it was just a small matter of contacting them, and asking them to spend two hours taking the test. As you can imagine, not all calls fell on friendly ears. It was a long time ago, and a lot of the people they contacted had moved on and wanted to leave the past behind. Detective Reese commented, Selling double glazing must be easier than selling a DNA test. It usually took two hours. The easiest people to deal with were those with convictions. They just wanted it out of the way. We ended up swabbing in barges, taxis and hotel rooms. The worst was always their sitting room in front of the wife. But after each test, the result came back the same, negative. And so the search continued on to the next person. And then a decisive break for the team. A DNA specialist managed to extract a profile from the swabs taken from Sandra Newton's body. It was a three-way mix, said Detective Bethel. Sandra, the boyfriend, and an unknown individual. But the unknown matched the profiles from the Landarcy murders. It was the same man. 
So all the doubts about Sandra's murder from the initial investigation were erased. The boyfriend was no longer a suspect. And the excitement for the team was that Sandra's body had been dumped into such a remote area, a place that someone passing through the area could not have been aware of. So it would only be known to locals. Detective Reese saw this as an absolutely key moment in the investigation, saying, I knew we'd get him then. We knew he was living locally. He was someone who must have been spoken to, and he had an Austin 1100. In October 2001, the team took a new approach based on the likelihood that the killer back in 1973 would have children of their own, and was it possible that there was a child of the offender on the criminal database? As you know, we inherit our DNA from our parents and pass on 50% of that DNA to our children. So the team knew they had 50% of the killer's children's DNA profile. In the same way as they had eliminated their suspects, this was another huge task. But following a 10-point process, they reduced the list from 22,000 possible suspects to just 100 names whose genetic profiles were related strongly to the one they were looking for. And of the 100, one stood out. Paul Kappen was only seven when the murders occurred, but his dad Joseph Kappen was number 200 on the list of 500 suspects. Surely Joseph Kappen had to be their man. It couldn't just be a coincidence. And in next week's episode, we will discover how detectives progressed with Joseph Kappen and whether he was the man who had murdered Pauline, Geraldine and Sandra. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please head to the Facebook group to discuss this episode or any other aspect of UK True Crime. And to support the show, please drop in at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime where you can find bonus episodes and lots more behind the scenes information. And please do head to my website at UKTrueCrime.com as there is lots of interesting stuff there too. When I say lots, of course I'm exaggerating, just a bit, but why not take a look anyway? UKTrueCrime.com So on that bombshell, that is all from me for today. Thank you for listening, and until we speak again next week to conclude this story from South Wales, whatever the provocation, do please stay classy. Cheerio for now.